Thank you, Brody and team. That was just really powerful. Let's pray. Father, as we sing this song, your goodness. <laughs> Lord, it is an act of your mercy that we cannot comprehend the full measure of your goodness to us. Were we to understand how good you are, we would be undone. <laughs> we would just not be able to function. It is an act of your mercy that we do not realize at every moment, every way, you love us, you pursue us, you care for us, and you're good to us. And were we to see the absolute sinfulness of our indifference, our just lights outness to you, our we don't care, even though we do care, we don't, we would be undone with the weight of our sin. And so, Lord, thank you that you are so good that you don't allow us to truly see how good you are all the time, nor do you let us see how bad we are all the time. We would just be a mess. Nothing would get done. But thank you that there are moments in your sovereignty and providence that we gather together as a corporate body and you pull the curtain back just a little bit and remind us of these truths. Help us to repent well, Lord. But help us to rejoice even better because of the gospel. <laughs> because of the gospel. Lord, our heart's desire is that this church would be a church that is centered on the gospel that we would never get past it. And all its thousand implications for our lives. Lord, this world needs the gospel. It needs people who know the gospel, people who have been changed by the gospel, challenged by the gospel, transformed by the gospel, enraptured by the truth of the gospel. Because they will not be convinced by our programs, our buildings, our slick presentations, our politics, our, our arguments. They will only be convinced when they see people who may have nothing in common loving each other well. And so, Lord, we pray you would grow that at this church, that we would never be the traditional church, the progressive church, the hipster church, the younger church, the older church, the educated church. We would just be the church where anyone who recognizes they are a sinner can find hope. Thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Boy, I feel like I have already kind of preached. <laughs> How do I segue from that to this, this amazing prayer to what might seem to be a rather mundane topic, which is the church, right? I mean, that's not something that you're waking up going, oh, I'm so excited to hear a sermon on the church. Uh, but I hope you are because we're experiencing that right now. Some years ago when our elders were talking about what are the values that will guide us, what are the values that are going to be the North Star of our church, it became pretty obvious that at least one of those values should be about the church, right? I mean, after all, uh, when we say that values guide us, when we say that values are a North Star, to whom or what are we referring when we say us or our now, I know some of you are here kind of wise guys. You go, well, duh, us, Christ Community Church. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? That just puts the question one step back when you think about it. For example, who or what is Christ Community Church? Do you mean everyone who's here right now? Well, if that's the case, what about all the people who are not here right now? 
Are we only Christ Community Church when we're actually physically on this campus and the moment we leave, we're no longer Christ Community Church? Do you mean everybody, regardless of what they believe? Or do you only mean those who believe in the gospel and have in faith repented of sin and turned to Christ? After all, any healthy church should have on any corporate gathering on a Sunday morning those who may not yet believe and are just kind of checking it out. So do you mean to include those people who themselves probably wouldn't include themselves in the church? Do you mean the visitor who might be checking us out for a month or two? And are they Christ Community Church just for a little while? Or do you mean the regular attender who, until there's a better church in town to go to, this is their home church, so this is their Christ Community Church. Or do you mean the committed members who are promising to one another, they're making promises to God, to themselves, and to one another to live out what the Apostle Peter says in his epistle, what it is to be the ones cut out of darkness, a holy nation, a chosen race, a royal priesthood. Again, when we say the church, to who or whom or what are we referring to? That is what we hope to clarify in this particular value. As we were writing it, in the process of writing this, uh, one of the elders emailed me a really good question and said, shouldn't the value read building up Christ's church rather than the generic building the church? After all, we're not interested in building up the Mormon church, right, or the Church of Science and Ontology. Shouldn't we be specific about the church we're trying to build? Now, that's a really good question. It's a very important question, especially when we're trying to think carefully about this thing called the church. So I responded to him, and here's my email. I'll just read it to you. Um, it starts right there. That's the important part. This is what I said. As I think about why I prefer building the church as opposed to building Christ's church, I suppose it has to do with the automatic response people have to the, two, to the two words, Christ and church. Your average evangelical has a positive response to the word Christ. Now keep in mind, when I wrote this, I didn't intend to read it publicly, so some of my thinking might be a little bit sloppy. Like I hope every evangelical is really positive to the word Christ, right? Uh, and generally, they'll be agreeable to any gesture to glorify, esteem, and promote the Lord of glory. Thus, who would disagree with the desire to build Christ's church? Therefore, this phrase will receive ready acceptance without any thought at all, good or otherwise. However, your average evangelical will have an ambivalent, maybe I could even say complacent, neutral, or even somewhat adversarial feeling to the concept of church. Now, of course, there will be a small minority that will have an immediate positive impulse toward the church. But as a general rule, I think my intuition is correct. Therefore, by simply saying building the church, it may cause the slightest pause to think about this. And by this, I mean ecclesiology, which is the doctrine of the church. Of course, the individual will not express it as such, but maybe for the first time, they will realize that a concept they heretofore merged in their mind, Christ's church, will now be thought of as two independent yet interrelated concepts, Christ and the church. What do they think about this? What feelings does this give rise to? How should these two relate? Can they be separated? Should they be separated? It is into this pause, I hope we, Christ Community Church, can make a difference through teaching, example, and consistency of our practices. The elders agreed. 
And so that was the driving motivation behind just saying building the church as opposed to building Christ's church. Now, I'm just going to give you a heads up. This is going to be a dense sermon. I don't mean dense like duh, but I mean thick, packed in there, right? So, so if you're not with me yet, kind of get in there, buckle up, because we're going to dive in. Look at how long this value is. I mean, it's a lot, okay? So let me read it to you. Here's our fourth and final value, building the church. We will live with a focus on God's salvation history. The church is a covenant community of believers marked off by the ordinance of baptism and the Lord's Supper who are overseen by biblically qualified elders who preach the gospel, practice the ordinances, and protect the flock. This value keeps us focused on God's plan of redemption that includes us as individual Christians and as a local church, but transcends us as well. We live with a covenant, not a consumer mentality. We have a tri-perspectival view of the church as local, global, and universal with an upward, God-centered, outward, missional, and inward, equipping and edifying emphasis. This value helps our Christian faith avoid individualism. Like I said, there's a lot there, but there's really three points to this value. Let me point them out to you. Number one is this concept, this word, salvation history. Friends, if you are a Christian, you have to understand that you are a part of something so much bigger than you. And that should be encouraging because it's a, it's a psychological reality that unless your life is a part of something so much larger than you, your life is going to feel unbearably small and meaningless and futile. And, and we're actually experiencing that existential tension in our society to this day. But the great news, friends, is that there is nothing bigger to give your lives to than God's salvation history. That doesn't mean you become a full-time gospel worker like a missionary or a pastor or some seminary professor at all. You could be a great insurance salesman, construction worker, or an attorney, but you're living with an understanding of God's salvation history. That, that's what that means. Second part of this definition, and, and we'll walk into each of these. I'm giving you the outline of the sermon, then I'm going to jump into it. The second part of this definition is an actual definition of the church. So to kind of counterbalance this huge thing called salvation history, we have this more defined, in other words, how does this huge reality work itself out? God's huge plan of salvation history is often working itself through, in, by, and because of local churches. So what we do is we define what a church is, not just this church, but what any biblical healthy church ought to be. So we have that in the definition as well. And then the, the third part of this definition, for lack of a better way, I, I call it a, a firmware perspective. Right, you guys all use like you guys know what firmware is, right? It's that code that it's not your software, it's not your hardware, but it without it, nothing will work. It sits in between the two, right? That, that's what firmware is. How does this huge what God's salvation history is working, and how does the local church, how do these connect? And that's what I'm just calling the, the firmware perspective. I know it's it's this is a horrible outline. It doesn't it doesn't start with the same letter, but it gets the idea, right? So we have a lot to cover, and I know I say that all the time. But as evidence, what I want to do is, is give you an overview of salvation history, which means take you through Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 in five minutes. Maybe seven. So open up your table of contents, okay? God's salvation history, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. So look at your table of contents. So in the beginning, right, Genesis 1 through 5, 
the creation, the fall, uh, God's first seed of redemption happening there. We have humanity as God's image bearers, vice regents with God to rule us alongside God in his creation, to extend his glory and rule. That's what his people are supposed to do. So we have God's people in Eden, God's place, under God's rule, right? Living in God's world. It's wonderful. We blow it, things go sideways. You kind of know that's how Genesis 1 through 5 goes. And then you get uh, Genesis 6 through 11, in which case, basically, God just wipes the slate clean. You got Noah, the Tower of Babel, and it just basically wipes everything out. Let's start over. I want a new humanity. And that's where Genesis 12 picks up. And who's the central figure? We have this man named Abraham or Abram, who becomes Abraham, and through Abram, we have this, this kind of reboot, this new start, a new, a new person who's going to call on God, who lives under God's word, takes him at his word, and is going to go to God's place. He becomes a man, which becomes a family, which becomes an entire ethnicity, which becomes the Hebrew people. And that's what the entirety of Genesis 12 through 50 is about. How it goes now, if we got this one man who grows into a family, he grows into the Hebrew people. God's rebooting the plan. That's all of the rest of Genesis. Then we get into Exodus. Look at your table of contents. Exodus, all the way through Malachi, the remainder of the Old Testament. This family now grows and becomes a nation under Moses. That's what Exodus is about. The family grows and they're now a nation under Moses. And this nation under David in the monarchy, so you jump over to see 1 Samuel. So look at 1 Samuel all the way down to 2 Chronicles. How this nation becomes a monarchy under King David. Now, I want to look at your table of contents. So you see after 2 Chronicles, you got Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And then you got Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then you see Isaiah all the way to Malachi. So that chunk, Isaiah to Malachi, all of those guys are prophets that are prophesying basically between 2 Samuel and 2 Chronicles. So it's not a linear path. All these prophets are ministering in that same time. And what happens is God is trying to reestablish his people. God's people under God's law, and now they got God's king. Unfortunately, they all fail. They're miserable. They, they, they end up going into exile. It's kind of a repeat of Genesis 3, isn't it? They hear God's word. They say, no, 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 we're not, we're not going to listen to your word. We're going to do it our way. And God says, well, then I have to get you out of my land. So it's a repeat of Genesis 3. So what happens there is the prophets keep prophesying. And then by the time you get to 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, we read about the exile. God's people being kicked out of God's place because they refused God's king and God's word over their lives. And then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, all those books are about what's going on with the God, people of God as they come back to the land. Sorry, I skipped Joshua and Judges and Ruth, right? So, so here's how it goes. Back up Exodus to Deuter Deuteronomy. God gives them law. This is what it's like to be under my people. This is my word. This is how you're supposed to live, right? So they have the law. And then in the monarchy, 1 Samuel Second 2 Chronicles, they're supposed to live out that law. Joshua and Judges is the transition when they go from tribes to a nation, a scattered people to a federation, a monarchy. Ruth is a story that takes place in the book of Judges. And then Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, that's just wisdom, how to live in the tension of God's law in a fallen world. So that's what all that is. And the goal is by the time the Old Testament ends, at the end of like basically Nehemiah, it's just question marks. 
Where's, where's the people of God? They're scattered. They're, they're barely hanging on. Where's God's hope? Where's God's king? Where's God's promises? They're not listening to God's word. Nothing makes sense. It, the Old Testament ends with a question mark. And then we get to the New Testament with the Gospels. And now all of a sudden again we have a new humanity. Humanity 1.0, Adam and Eve, they blew it. Humanity 2.0, the children of Israel, they blew it. We need a new humanity. If you were here when we talked about faithful to Scripture, we made this case. Jesus is now the new humanity. And the rest of Acts to Revelation is answering the question, how then do we live out? Jesus fulfilled everything that came in, in, in Genesis to Deuteronomy. He fulfilled it all. How do we live now as God's new people in God's presence? When you think about it, we are actually God's presence because we're now the temple, right? Under God's king who is Christ. And then the book wraps up with the book of Revelation. Now here's where we are in the timeline. So we're not in the book of Acts because that's 2,000 years ago. We're right between, there's a hyphen, and we almost finished. We're almost through the book of Revelation. Now, if you're here two years ago, I taught through the entire book of Revelation, right? And so that's why the book of Revelation is not for some future people, just for that select few. It is, now that you know the word, Revelation is God's salvation history. The whole book is recounting from Genesis to the end. All of God's salvation history and his plan. In fact, Revelation 12, if you remember, that single chapter is telescoping all of history from the beginning of time to the consummation. That we see here is what God is doing. I've lost my point here in my plant, my thing. Yep, okay. So we have this expansive view of the people of God. In the New Testament, they're called the church. Did you hear when Re uh, Brody read Revelation 7? All people, all places, all times, all summed up in Christ. The reoccurring theme from Genesis to Revelation, the people of God in the presence of God with God's king under God's word and his rule. This big cosmic hope is fulfilled and oftentimes, like so much biblical truth, is fleshed out in very ordinary, regular, we might even say mundane realities which is the second point of what I'm talking about today, the local church. Okay, let me back up because I knew I just like threw a bunch of stuff at you. What you needed to see was from the beginning, God created humanity to be in fellowship with him, to live in his presence, to be under his good rule as king, and to, to live out his word, and we rejected it over and over and over again. And the plan, we see it always happening in the Bible. God's trying to find a new humanity. And finally, Jesus starts the new humanity. Which is why in the New Testament, the phrase, being in Christ, is so important. We're in this new humanity. And now, we're not an ethnic group, but this thing called the church. Not just Abraham and the Jews, but all people, Jews and Gentiles, is the church. Now, that's salvation history. Now the second part of our value talks about and defines the church. Now the church, as you can see here, we have four parts to it, so I'm not going to explain it in any particular order. Number one is the gospel. Now we talked about what it means to be gospel-centered a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to spend too much time on that. But the gospel is the central core of the other three, right? It, it, it is itself the new covenant. If you're a note taker, uh, write down Jeremiah's 20, 31 to 33. Ezekiel 36, 37. You can go home and read those later. Jeremiah 31 to 33, Ezekiel 36, 37, where God says, I keep making covenants with you. I keep bringing you kings. I keep bringing judges, and you guys keep rejecting me. I got to make a whole new covenant. 
I got to make a whole new people. And that's what the gospel is doing. At the heart of that is a community, a people, not atomized individuals, but a people who their hearts, to use the metaphor of the prophets, their hearts of stone are being changed to hearts of flesh. And I love this past week I had lunch with somebody from our church, and literally that's what they said. Well, they said this, we don't know what's going on in our marriage. The Lord is working. I didn't, my wife's not the same woman I married. I'm not the same man she married. God is changing us, and we don't even know how. Well, it's your hearts of stone are becoming hearts of flesh. It's a new humanity, the new people of God. So that's the gospel. But then we talk about this thing called the ordinances, Right? And the two that we recognize that are practiced are baptism and the Lord's Supper. So here what I want you to do is go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. So one of the main ordinances is baptism. The other one is the Lord's Supper. And let's talk about how these ordinances work with the gospel. Because here's my argument. The two ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper are the physical and visible representations of this gospel. Baptism signifying, signifying the work of God's spirit in cleansing us and forgiving us and raising us up with Christ. This is what Paul says. Romans 6.3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in this newness of life. So what Paul is saying is that all of us individuals, when we got baptized, it was signifying this work of God cleansing us, forgiving us, and uniting us into the body of Christ so all of us individuals through Christ, through baptism, have become one. Paul makes his case really clear in 1 Corinthians 12, 13. This is what he says. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of the one spirit. So in baptism, we individuals get baptized, united with Christ, brought into the body of Christ. Right, that's what that powerful symbolism of baptism. Buried into the grave, right? Raised up new, clean. It's a wonderful symbol of what the Lord is doing in regenerating us. In communion, or what we call here the Lord's Supper, it signifies and communicates in probably one of the most visceral, um, powerful ways that we, our lives are not sustained by this world. That our sustenance, our strength it comes from Christ. Now, here's the challenge. You're like, really? Because it seems like we just walk up and get a little juice and, and bread and dip it and that's it. Um, there's a figure of speech. Oh, I need you English grammarians to help me. Syndaki, where the part is representative of the whole. It's, I think it's syndaki, right? Synecdoche, synecdoche, thank you, yes, a synecdoche. It's a figure of speech where the, the part represents the whole, right? Like um, if we say, hey, we need all hands on deck. You don't think, I mean, cut your hands off and throw them on the deck, right? You know, what does that mean? That all the hands represent, we're working to the, we're getting this job done, right? You guys make sense? Or like, you get a new car, hey, check out my wheels. You don't mean just look at the rubber, right? You mean by the wheels, the whole car. So what's happening here, the communion meal used to be a full-blown meal, right? Imagine Jesus. And so then he grabs bread and a cup, and the bread and the cup are a, oh, help me again, Robert. What was that word? 
Synecdoche, it, the part representing the whole. So the bread and the cup represented all this food and drink. And what we're saying is that it is Christ who satiates my hunger, and it is Christ who satisfies, quenches my thirst, not the things of this world. That's what communion, that's what the bread and the cup represents. That I'm not, my strength and all that doesn't come from the things of this world. It comes from the bread and the cup that represent the life and the death of Christ. Get this. In communion, the many of us, the individuals, become one. Okay? 1 Corinthians 10, 17. Listen to what Paul says. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Check this out. Let me draw. I'm, I'm, I'm setting something up. In baptism, the one becomes part of the many. Paul says in communion, the many become the one. So in baptism, the one joins the many. But in communion, the many become the one. Why is this important? And there's just so many ramifications of this, but let me just give you this. Why is this important? Because currently in our culture, we, we are seeing the tensions of the inability for the many and the one to come together. So if you, are, um, if you come from a traditional culture, that can be an age thing, it can be an ethnic thing as well. Uh, the, a traditional culture tends to emphasize the many. Your duty to your family, your responsibilities to, to your tribe, your clan, your nation. It's all about the many. And traditional culture can make an idol out of community because of that, right? Now, if you come from progressive culture, and that, again, can be an ideological thing, can be an age thing, can be an ethnic thing, the emphasis of traditional culture is not on the many, it's actually on the one. And so the emphasis there is about your rights, your freedoms, your preferences, and they ignore the necessity of the community. And so what the progressive culture can do is make an idol of the one. So you see this dynamic. A traditional culture can value community so much that they make it an idol and ignore the uniqueness of individuals. A progressive culture can value the one so much they ignore the necessity of the community and make an idol of the individual. And I think if you look at our culture, there is this constant battle and tension of an idolatry between it's all about the group, responsibility, and obligation, or it's all about the individual rights and freedoms. The many and the one cannot exist. But in the church, in the very ordinances that make up and mark off the church, we see the many and the one coming together, not as a compromise of tensions, but each in the fullness because each side strengthens together. Now, if you're paying attention, I know this is a meaty sermon, but there should be something of what I just said that's resonating with you. I don't have time to get into it, but I, I just, because... But I want you to see the coherency of the Christian worldview. You're thinking, wait, the, the many and the one working together sounds familiar. Well, it should be because the very fountainhead of the Christian faith, we have the many and the one and the one and the many living together in eternal harmony. It's called the Trinity. Unity in diversity in community. The one and the many, the many and the one living together in harmony. It's not a coincidence that even in the church, we represent the same reality of the triune Godhead. And that is marked off by the ordinances that we participate on a regular basis. So the gospel, the saving message of Jesus Christ, calling out a new humanity, it's reinforced by the visible, 
physical signs of the gospel in the ordinances creates this covenant community. In other words, friends, the ordinances, they mark off the people of God. God is working out his salvation history in the world so the world can physically, visibly see who are those people that God is working through, and it's the church. Unlike ethnic Israel that had the same markers, to become an Israelite, you need to be circumcised. To remain an Israelite, you had to partake of the Passover over and over again. But that was for ethnic Israel. Now the gospel has transcended ethnicity. Everyone's involved. And so those ethnic markers no longer apply. But the world still needs to see who's the church. Oh, it's those marked off by these symbols of the gospel. By the way, the word ordinances is for you guys who like these kind of sidebar information. The very word sacrament I know if you're like from Catholicism, you're like, no, I'm not, I left Catholicism. Sacrament comes from Latin sacramentum. It literally means oath. And so baptism and the Lord's table is a promise that you're making, right? I don't know if you knew that, but that's what the word comes from. Which is why, by the way, element number three, the church is a covenant community. Covenant just means promise. That just means promise. The church is a people that have been formed by the promises of God to us. Our promises to him, to, our, to one another, and to the world. We'll briefly talk about that in point number three. Now, to make sure that all this keeps happening fluidly, God does not raise up now prophets, priests, or kings. That, that had to do with national Israel. God raises up elders in each of these churches to preach, to practice, and protect the gospel. And God's people. After all, you are God's prized possession. You are his prized possession. And so this covenant community, elders are always saying, are we bearing fruit in keeping with the fact that we are the called out ones? Are we repenting of sin? Are we pursuing holiness? Are we glorifying God? Are we being a witness to the world? So when the world says, I want to find these covenant people, where's God's salvation history? Oh, it's those people. Not only are they marked off by these symbols of the gospel, but their lives show the gospel taking place. That's what elders do. Very similar in function to the prophet, priest, and king of the Old Testament, but different because we are now the church. So let me wrap this up before we move on to point three, my final point. So God's plan of redemption, his salvation history being worked out in the people of God in the Old Testament was Abraham, the Hebrews, the Israelites. In the New Testament now, it's the people of God that are the church. Jews and Gentiles from all nations, all languages, all times. But what links the two? What's the firmware between this massive salvation history and this local expression? In other words, what's the link that puts together all nations, all languages, all times to our nation, our language, our time? That's the last point. So the three perspectives. You'll see them up there on the screen. So if, well actually I'll put it up on the screen later. If someone asks you, now here's the part. I know I just threw a lot on you guys. Are you still with me? Okay, can we get a little bit more? Can I stretch you a little bit more? Okay, because that's a rhetorical question because I'm going to do it anyway. Um, if somebody asks you, hey, how's the church doing? 
right? Chances are you're going to respond based on how we are doing, right? If you're seeing the fruit of people at Christ Community Church, you're coming to Lord's Supper service and you're hearing what's going on in the community. You go to rope holders, you're hearing about this great missions work that's going on. And you might answer, man, great, church is doing great. Is that a correct answer? Here's my famous reply. My wife says, I always say this, yes and no. Okay. Why? Because if you're paying attention, I'm looking at my nose because I really don't want to mess this up because this part gets a little bit thick. As true as all that would be, this church is just one local church. It's not the church, is it? So when someone asks you, hey, how's the church doing? If you're just thinking your church, that's not a biblical way to view the church. And yet, and yet, let me speak out of the other side of my mouth, at the same time, Every local church is a complete, full manifestation of the church. In other words, Christ Community Church is not part of the church. And then Compass down in Elisa Villa is a part of the church. Or Reverence and Mission Villa is part of the church. And Calvary Chapel down in South OC is part of the church. And you cobble them together and then voila, you have the whole church. That's not it. Every local church is a manifestation of the church. But the church cannot be reduced to each local church. So let me use a syllogism. I think it's a syllogism. Robert, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, Just as every man is human, it doesn't follow that all humans are men. Right? So there is an intractable relationship that connects them, but the identification does not collapse on itself. So while every church is a manifestation of the church, the church cannot be reduced to each local church. And that's partly because of what the church is. Right? Which is why on some Sundays, like this morning, you'll hear us preach or pray for other churches. Because we are concerned for the church. Not just this local manifestation of it. Right? So... What is the essence of the church? We have three aspects of it. There's a local element, a global element, and a universal element. And you have to balance all three or you're going to crash in a ditch. If you think the local church is just kind of like your expression of it or maybe a handful of them, the problem is you're going to confuse the gospel for your cultural trappings, your cultural manifestation, the way you particularly do church. And you're going to misunderstand what the gospel actually is. And then what you export to other people is not the gospel, but your cultural understanding of the gospel. Does that make sense? Bad thing to do. That's one ditch. On the other hand, if you just think globally about the church, like it's all people, all times, everywhere, you will misprioritize what you do at a local level, and you'll do things that, that basically you have an abstract example of the church that has no concrete expression. And so you need to understand the locality of the church and the global aspect of the church. In one sense, you've got to think globally, but act, live locally. So things like missions, church planting, actually using our resources to benefit other churches. Not spending every penny we have on us, but giving away as much as we can, which has been the history of this church, which I'm very excited about. But there's also another factor of this. Not only are we the local and global church, we are the universal church. Which means, while there will be very strong differences between our 21st century American church in Laguna Hills and a 12th century church in Estonia, there's going to be a lot of similarities. 
Because the thread of Christian faith is going to be woven through all those. Yeah, we might have nicer seats, air conditioning, and video screens. They didn't have any of that. But you're still going to have the reading of Scripture, the preaching of the gospel, prayers, mission, study of God's word, uh, elderly, plurality of elder leadership. There's going to be enough that combines us. And what that also means, friends, is that you and I don't get to reinvent the church and make it up and make it about our cultural desires or preferences. Because there's this continuity because we're part of the universal global church as well as a local expression. And so we don't get the freedom to just do whatever we want with the church. So if you're visiting, uh, just a practical level, whenever you hear churches say stuff like, church like it's never been done before, right? Or like a reinventing church, dude, shake the spot, man, just keep on walking. Because for 1800, 1900 years, the church has been the church. But when we disconnect ourselves from the universality of it and the global aspect of it, we come up with all kinds of bizarre understandings of the church. As an example, I'm wrapping this up. Our emphasis on church membership, discipline, and lately my teaching on the ordinances is an example of looking back on the history of the church, the global church, and saying, I think our local understanding of it is wrong. For whatever reason, modernity, uh, American desire for efficiency to be relevant, post-modernity, we've abandoned those things. And to the church's great, I guess, our vitality has been gone, our witness is shot, people call themselves Christians and they live like hell and we do nothing about it, right? All that's been shot. And so we looking back on our history and looking at the globe saying, this is what most Christians have done historically, we have got to get back to it. We don't get to make up church how we want to. So that's the local, global, universal. We keep all three in mind because they help inform one another. Finally, we have this upward, outward, inward element to the church. I talked earlier about churches being a church of promise, right? It's a covenant community. We make promises to God to love him, to center our lives around him. We make promises to each other to help each of us live up to promise number one. And we make a promise to the world to show them what life is like under the rule, blessing, and life of God, which is what his people have always done historically. This is our goal in this value, and with this I end, is to get you to love the church. Not necessarily this church. Here's how this works. If we get you to love God's salvation history and what he's doing through the church, then by definition, you're going to love this church. But it doesn't necessarily work the other way. We have failed. If we got you so jazzed and excited about Christ Community Church, but you haven't loved the church, right? We need to get you excited about what God is doing. Our job is not make you fans of Christ Community, but to be into God's salvation history. So that your worship of God is rich and full. And your witness to the world is as pure and righteous as possible. And your walk is worthy of the gospel. If that's the kind of church you want to be a part of, that's what we value. We will not execute that perfectly. At all. But that's why, when we get back to the gospel and grace and forgiveness, it all works together. But that's our value of building the church. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for... Man, this doctrine of the church that I get excited about. Because I am a personal beneficiary of your people working together. 
in my discipleship as a young man, as, as my life as a Christian, currently as a senior pastor, my family, my friends, the church is central to it because the gospel is central to the church and because Christ is the center of the gospel. It all works that way. Help us to be a community of people who are living circumspectly oh, for your glory and the good of your people. And the good of those who are not yet your people, but will be brought to be your people because of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.